Hello, everybody. Welcome to our new edition of RZ Weekly, our weekly podcast about unorthodoxy, religious Zionism, and everything in between. Between. My name is Ruben Spolter. I'm the director of Kita.org, Jewish Online Learning Initiative. Um, I'm here with Rabbi Johnny Solomon. Rabbi Johnny Solomon is the head of uh, many different organ- many different initiatives, including his own personal Beit Midrash program. Reach out to him to become a member of his Beit Midrash. And a Rabbi Bali Brasky, who isn't talking anything. Molly, we can fix that if you want. Are you interested? <laughs> Thank you. Maybe one No? Not, not, not yet. yet. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, today we're going to talk about, in light of, there's been quite a few articles as we are now mired in the depths of, of our Seger number three, right? The general closure number three, which is sort of a Seger. Half the people in my issue go to work, but whatever. But we're beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel, please God, as Israel vaccinates um, and and, and uh, we contemplate the idea of returning to show. We thought today we would take some time and and address the idea of what should shuls look like, or what kind of introspection should communities do as we contemplate the return the return to shul, and uh, and we're going to do it so in light of three pieces of media that we were that we've seen uh, recently. One is a little bit older. One is a Facebook post by Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg from the Book of Return Synagogue, who wrote in October about, do you come when davening in shul is just davening in shul? And he wrote about the idea that they had opened, shuls reopened, and I, I know this from my rabbinic colleagues, many shuls have already reopened, even with social distancing, but many of them are still empty. Even the ones that are open, they're finding attendance is very, very lax. Either it's because of COVID, or they're wondering, is it, is it for another reason? Are people not coming back for the way Rabbi Goldberg, it was, his post was sort of an exhortation, please come back, we miss you. But it, also out of concern, are people not coming back because they don't miss me or they don't miss us. They don't miss what this is. And then and recently, then recently in the Lair House, uh, they, they featured an article by Rabbi Judah Kerbel who, entitled The Synagogue After Corona from Crisis to Opportunity, which I'll leave to, uh, to Johnny to summarize. And just today, Rabbi Yechiel Schaffer, or Schaefer, you have to tell me, does anybody know which one it is? Don't you don't know, of Baltimore, wrote, he wrote a response to that article called, After COVID, Reimagine Synagogue Life, Don't Tweak It, a response to Judah Kerbel. So, Johnny, uh, let's take it one by one. I, wa- I would like you to respond, to sort of summarize, if you will, in your own, in your own words, what did Rabbi Schaefer write, meaning what is, what is the, re- what is the, I'm sorry, what did Rabbi Kerbel write? And that was a good springboard for the conversation. And I guess that would, I'll, I'll ask you to respond to what it is that he wrote. I mean, he had the idea of, uh, I, I'll just say from my perspective, he, was, he didn't, he didn't um, foresee really significant structural changes, maybe subtle, small changes, but that's a good springboard for, for the broader discussion of what should Shul look like. So how did you respond to his piece? I guess you don't have to summarize it. How was, what was your reaction to his piece? And, uh, and how do you see shul life uh, being reimagined as we, return to, as we return to the shuls after COVID? Please, God, is done. Okay, so firstly, hello to all our listeners, um, and thanks for the introduction. Uh, uh, Rabbi Kabel's piece, I felt to be um, a good survey of what's changed in terms of the prayer experience, the learning experience, uh, as you know, most of us haven't been attending uh, synagogues and have not been praying in at least formal minyanim, sometimes outside, many people praying alone, 
a lot of people have been learning online through uh, Zoom or other uh, online platforms. And, and the whole element of, of mixing, of, of socialization, which is familiar to the synagogue, obviously, is absent. And so what Rabbi Kabbal kind of did is give us uh, a sense of those changes and try and make sense of what we could learn from what we've become familiar with outside of the synagogue experience in terms of learning, in terms of, I suppose, a, a private inspiration, but then remind people of what should be, what is essentially part of the Jewish living experience. For example, he says, it's all very well and good that people have been finding inspiration elsewhere, but a synagogue is about connection with God and with others. And when we return to synagogue, or we should return to synagogue, knowing that that is an essential part of why we go there. Uh, and he speaks a lot about the Jewish experience of synagogue life. And though there are various different other ways that that could be met and those needs could be um, fulfilled, the, the experience of synagogue is something which we should be yearning for. And so there may all be tweaks to how we live the synagogue experience in the post-COVID era. I, it seems, and, and this is probably a poor summary, so for Rabbi Cabell listening, please accept my apologies and everybody should read his article. I felt the summary excellent, but it seems to be suggesting that things will go back, not quite the same. Hopefully we'll have learned more about what opportunities exist outside the classic synagogue structure. But we should know that a lot of things beforehand that we should be wishing to connect to um, as we return back to whatever time that that occurs wherever you live okay so what was your what's a, your what was your re response what was your reaction to his to his article firstly i just i thought it was useful for somebody to lay out uh these different uh changes because oftentimes we separate tefillah from limud torah to to that sense of socialization he said all of those were central to why we go to shul all of those have changed all of those need some reconsideration, and probably all of those won't be quite the same as we go back. Right, but I'm asking you, I'm, I want to drill down. Take, pick one of those. Meaning, you said, when you talked about social engagement, prayer, and spirituality, do you think that shuls, and it's hard to dis discuss this because, in a way, we're talking about two different communities, two different, two different really realities, Chuslaretz and Eretz Israel. Like those are, shuls play very, very, very different roles in those two different places. But let's talk about Chutz Laaretz for now. Shuls really were a gathering place for many Jews who came together, who founded a place to come together on Shabbat. Definitely a place for, for public prayer. Spirituality, really interesting question. If it was supplying for the vast majority of Jews an opportunity for spirituality. Do you agree? Do you think, well, let me, I'll just ask you straight out. How do you see... Pick one of those and, and ask yourself, yeah, I, I'm going to leave davening on the side. Davening is davening. It's a place of prayer. Spirituality. Do you think synagogues provided people with a sense of spirituality? And if not, what do they need to do in order to offer that sense of spirituality? I think synagogues provided people with a space to step away from the distractions of spirituality to possibly tap into aspects of spirituality. Meaning, here's the thing. 
I've been davening at home for, you know, I suppose 10 months or something like that. The shul is really around the corner. And even there have been times when I there have been tefillah there. Obviously, in safe ways, I prefer to stay davening at home. But when I pray at home, I've got all these other things around me. You know, I've got the distractions of what home life is all about. But when I daven in shul, I have a whole different architecture around me, which reminds me of a whole different set of priorities. And that allows me to tap into a whole different way of encountering the world and thinking about my connection to God precisely because that noise is less. The volume of other things is more diminished. So I think that when, though many people perhaps have not, when there's been windows of opportunity to go back to shul, when it is safe to do so, I think we will recognize how blessed it is to have a place where all those other distractions from spiritual pursuits have been diminished. And though, of course, one can talk to God wherever, actually being unflustered, undisturbed, and focused, attentive on not only Akadosh and Tefillah, but on the imagery and, and visualization that emerges from those images in the Bet Knesset, that's a very, very powerful thing. And so, yes, I think spirituality can strong, strongly emerge from the synagogue experience. And uh, once a person is comfortable in synagogue, they'll do so. I will say one further thing, though, and then I'll wrap up, which is, until now, when you're still wearing a mask and you've got lots of layers in a shul, I don't think people are relaxed. And this was, for example, pointed out by Rabbi Schaefer, which is, so even if you've been going to shul on and off during COVID, I don't think there is a certain menuchat nefesh. Yeah, you're looking around, who's next to you? And did that guy cough? And why is he sniffling? And Right, so so, so when I, you know, in the pre-COVID era, I was able to kind of just relax and just be, and then focus on whatever I'm trying to focus on, either successfully or not. But even where, on the one or two occasions, I've, you know, davened the minion or, or in a shul, I've been completely anxious, right? And so I don't think we can quite measure how successful or not successful the return to shul will be midway through a global pandemic during the few windows of time when a green light's been given for people to say, yes, you can come back, because I don't think that's authentic coming back. I don't think people are calm. Okay, I wanna, we've been going for a long time. You haven't actually uh, had a chance to speak to Molly. Molly, I want you to, can, can you respond to what Johnny's saying? I mean, Johnny said, yeah, the shul is a place where spirituality, and, and he's absolutely right, it's a place that's set up for spirituality, for minimization of distraction, for, for spiritual focus. But that, that, interestingly, wasn't what I was thinking about when I asked the question. I was thinking more about the services, the, the prayer services, and the way that they're structured, and the way that, they're, that they were run. Do they promote spirituality and if they, to, to you? And not only to you, but to most people. And if not, do they need to be tweaked? Right. So I think that's that, that like the intersection of what you're saying and what Johnny's saying, I think, is exactly where the problem is, because what Johnny is talking about is the ideal. Right. The ideal is that you should go to shul and both um, Rabbi Kerbel, who shout out to his wife, Eliana, who was my student. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I, it's nice to see pictures of them uh, together. It's very sweet. Anyway, so um, um, 
he also talks about that, that the shul is supposed to be a sacred space and that this, that just being in that space is supposed to kind of engender this, this like, exactly what Johnny described of, you know, making space to, for your relationship with God. And Ephraim Goldberg also has, has a piece where he, he talks about meditation and he talks about how, right, meditation is, he had spoken to somebody, somebody who was experienced meditation, not Jewish, and he was so moved by the guys, he, an hour a day was able to get into this very meditative mm-hmm. spiritual state. And he's like, but do we do that with our Shachar's Menchamayrev? And I think that's the problem, right? What Johnny's describing is the ideal. Ideally, we should be walking he, into Shul. In, to be fair, in his post, he suggested he suggested that you could do that in our prayers. Right. But I, if, okay. you, so if you've been to Shachar's Menchamayrev, you'll that, know that exactly. that's really so not that's reality. So that's what I want to say. What I want to say is, to me, the problem is that reality does not support the ideal right now. And the truth is, what stru- struck me, a very good friend of mine um, wrote to me the, the following. She wrote, how are you holding up? And then she wrote... You know, I think there's a lot of spiritual silence. And then she wrote this very um, damning, and I mean that not in the curse word of the way, but in the, in the descriptive, right? Damning sentence. Religions are not so useful during the crisis. You could agree with her, you could, you could disagree with her, but I think what she meant, right? And again, I'm going to read that again. I think there's a lot of spiritual silence. There's a lot of... Um, what do you think of, that means? Okay, I'll tell you what I think silence. she means by that. I think there's a lot of halakhic conversation, Right about wow. masks and about shoals and about Zoom and about there's a lot of and, and about pikuach nefesh and there's a lot of and that's wonderful, but there's a lot of spiritual silence. There's a lot of like people are thirsting for, and I'm not talking about is there meaning and what's the beauty of the meaning of Corona. I'm saying we all have to get through this time in our life, um, and we're all struggling, and we should all be turning to spirituality and to religion and to God. Um, that, that's what it's there for. It's 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 meant to be a support and a, and and a and, and a help when we're struggling. And that's not there isn't a lot of that. And and this and I feel like this talk about going back to shul is so para, paradigmatic of that because it's exactly what you're saying, right? Johnny's saying I want to go back to shul because it's going to spiritually enrich me. And Ruby's saying, yeah, but for a lot of people, it's not what happens when they go back to shul. And I know somebody who just went back to shul and said. I'm, I'm so sorry to say, I, I hadn't been in shul for a year, walked back into the shul, didn't do anything for me spiritually. And it could be that Johnny's right. It could be because the nylons are all up and, and you know, everybody's still a little bit, you know, who's what's with his mask and what's with that mask. But, and and again, I'm not saying this at all to um, to say anything about, negative about our system, right? But, but the truth is that sometimes the way in which we daven and the way in which we use shul has become so technical, as you said. You're rushing through the words and, and, and it doesn't, the words get in the way of the spirituality, right? And so like the challenge is how can we bring the spirituality into the experience? And I, I think I just want to say two things about that. No, I, I, want two, back, I want to push back. Wait, sure, but I'm going to push back wait, to wait. you so you can respond. I'll okay, back fine. To you. fine. I'll, I'll hold my... On that point, things. you can write <laughs> yeah. them down or not. I will write them, them down so I don't forget you them. You should because I would forget them. Okay. Wait, wait, my pushback wait. is... Yeah. Wait, I, I, speaking, I already forgot them. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay, sp- I'm go sp- ahead. I'm speaking. My pushback is... Can she write them down and listen at the same time? We'll find I out. I my, my pushback is... But I can't listen and write them down. I'm not sure that we really are seeking spirituality in shul. Like I used to... Like, there was a period of time... Where I was like very upset, like, oh, shul is so by road and I'm not getting anything out of it. And then at some point I realized, you know, I'm not getting anything out of it. 
because I don't want to get anything out of it. Spirituality is about the, the relationship that you have with God and your willingness to invest. And if you recall, I don't know, before we started recording this podcast, there was a whole like hubbub about the, the, the prominence of what we call orthopraxy in, in the Orthodox community and how some frightening percentage of people don't really believe in Orthodoxy but are just practicing Orthodox because... You know, that's the best way to maintain their, their allegiance to Judaism. So if you really want to think about it and be honest with ourselves, how many of us are on some level of the spectrum of orthopraxy in that, yeah, we do all the stuff, but the real work, the avodah Belev, like we shy away from. So we go to shul because we want to go, I want to go to shul, but I want to, I want to say that I went to shul and that I davened. I'm not entirely sure that I want to have connected to God because because of that yeah, Rav expe- says because that right. experience well, right, that's, well, Rav frightens Rav and intimidates so, me. Right. So I'd say Rosalovich if John just mentioned Rosalovich Rosalovich is not not so pro that. Right. He's like that's a very Adam one experience. It's not really an Adam two experience. You can call it whatever you want, but you're, that's not uh, that's no, not too loud. There's this quote um, right, no, he says the modern Jew wants to say. I uh, I've prayed, not that I wish to pray. All, uh, yeah, it's all it's not it's an Adam one experience. It's not an Adam two experience. Meaning what my, I would my, say. My question is for all these uh, rabbis, or for all of us saying, "Well, is the shul doesn't really find a spiritual place?" It could very well be that the shul provides people exactly what they're looking okay, for. Okay, so so what I so this is this will be my answer to that. First of all, that's one of the two things I wrote down. I wrote down the words "revolt" and I wrote down different strokes for different folks. So I'll go. I'll start with the second thing, which is. I think we do need to recognize, and I think that's, that's part of why I liked, um, I think it was Rabbi Corbell's article, because he went through, like, what does the shul provide for people? And part of it mm-hmm. is the social dynamic and, 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 and part of, you know, and a lot of the, the praxis that you, that you talk about. And even just the, the, the orthopraxy of, of, of like, I, I'm a person who dives three times a day. Right, and even if I don't feel it, I, that 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 links me in to being a firm person, and that's 100%. really valuable. So I, I would not never presume to to knock those things, and I therefore I mean, I think that people that we talk about changing of the shul and there's too much do- talking in shul and the experience right. is not spiritual. It could very well be that the vast majority of people okay. so want that's to come why to I shul to talk in shul. Correct, and maybe that's okay, <laughs> and that's why I wrote different strokes for different folks. And I think I said this like a year ago or more when we discussed this. People are looking for different things in shul, and maybe people are looking for different things in shul on different days. Sometimes I might want X, and sometimes I want might, might want want Y. Maybe we should be providing different models, right? Maybe again, like Israel has this, like you know, there's one main minion at least in our, our yeshuv. Maybe we should have more than that, so that you have the singing minion, and you have the fast minion, you have the small minion, and you have the the you know drusha minion, and you have the chazanas minion. People need different. People need yeah, options. Yeah, I'm really shocked and that there's no hashkama minion in Alon Shavuot. There's one. There's one hashkama minion, but there, there's this. You know, this again. I think it comes from socialism, from and from like you know the early days of the. You know, we have one thing, and and you know anything that like you know don't leave the kibbutz, um, and I think that needs to shift. <laughs> I think I, I think we do need to give space for. It's okay. Sometimes you just want to come and schmooze with your friends, and that's okay. And you just want to go. To, you just want to go to Kiddush, and that's okay. And sometimes you do want to be elevated by the spirituality, and 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 so provide, figure out how to provide multiple opportunities. But the second thing I wanted to say, which is why I wrote the words Rav Dov, is because Rav Dov's book. What's it called? Vani Tfilati? Is that what it's called? Vani Tfilah. Yeah. So so the so in the beginning of the book, he talks about walking into the shul. And taking a few minutes to, if you want to use the word fancy, fancy word meditate, if you want to use a less fancy word, you know, reflection, and if you want to use a firm word, you can use his bodhidus. But he says, that, you know, the first thing you do is kind of walk in and say, Matov, I forgot, I forgot um, 
what is it, va, va, probably like the, you know, the psukim from Matovu about like, I'm walking into the shul and, and, and giving yourself time to soak that in so that you can experience what Johnny was talking about. Um, and, I, and I do think that like of the options that we should be providing when we're saying let's provide options, I think we do have to think about that question of like how I think there, there's we have to give air and oxygen and support for that movement, for the movement that's going to help people yes, become more meditative, yes, become more connected, yes, view tefillah as more than just mumbling words, and 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 back to, if we're going to quote Rav Soloveitchik, be able to move through the tefillah to a place where tefillah feels like standing in front of Hashem, which for the Rav is the ultimate definition of what tefillah is, really the feeling of the presence of God. And, and, we, and maybe not all the time, and maybe not for everybody, and maybe not, whatever, but like, I think that, that we should make space for that as one of the options, and think about are our communities providing is there really spiritual silence and if there is how can we it, it doesn't have to be spiritual silence especially we talk about this a lot on this podcast especially in Israel where there's so much spiritual renaissance so how can we bring in that that ruchniyut into the tefillah experience in a way that's accessible to people who are really looking for it so I mean we're talking about a number of different things about the community as a whole I, like for me it's interesting when I think about rabbis and 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 you know, as a former shul rabbi, and you're, you're in, in essence, beholding the community, but you're providing for the community, you're guiding the community, you want to lead them in a sense. I mean, in Detroit, I think all communities are going in this direction. Uh, what you're finding is that the shuls, that, that even, they, they simply can't provide everything to everyone. Because on the one hand, people want to have a big shul. Why? Because when their son becomes bar mitzvah, they need to have the big thing with the big kiddush. But on the off weeks, then you're finding that the community has sprung, institutions have sprung up to provide alternatives, the Shtibo Minion or the Chalent Guy or the, you know, or the, that aren't necessarily in the, in the shul structure that you can't really control. So a person looking for more spirituality will say, oh, I, I'm a member of the shul, I pay my dues, but I don't come because I love davening the kolo. And it happens in communities around the world. And the rabbi's like, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, because I can't turn the shul into a kolo because half the people don't want it. But then the other half of the people say, well, because, because the shul is a big shul and too many people are talking, I only want to come during my son's bar mitzvah. It's a real, it's a catch-22 in a sense that it's unfair. Like the rabbis really don't know what to do because the people want the big shul to be there, but they want the big shul to be there for when they need it. But then if they don't feel like going, then they're not going to show up. When in reality, we really need everybody to show up and dive in and to make it a spiritual place. So I'm not, I'm not sure what the answer to that is. I don't know if it's going to be any different post-COVID rather than pre-COVID. I want to ask a different question. But before we do that, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hi there, this is Rabbi Johnny Solomon. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about my virtual learning community, as well as the opportunities I've now created for people to have sessions with me for spiritual coaching, for halachic consultations, and for one-to-one learning. Have you ever faced a situation where you want to get some advice about your spiritual direction, religious choices you're making, and you're not quite sure who to turn to? Or perhaps there is somebody you'd like to talk with, but they simply haven't got the time. Or maybe you have a Sheila, and rather than wanting a simple answer, you want to have a better understanding of the sugya of the issues involved. Over many years, people have turned to me for advice, and as a result of that, I've now created a virtual learning community where I am, for many people, a virtual rabbi of sorts. 
people turn to me and I make time so that I can hear from them, talk with them, help them grow and give them guidance, direction and understanding. To find out more, please visit my website, rabbijohnnysolomon.com, where you can either book in for a standalone spiritual coaching, halachic consultation, or one-to-one session, or where you can join my VLC, my virtual learning community. Thank you. Jewish studies teachers in schools around the world often struggle with the challenge of teaching students text skills. Decoding text, identifying shirashim, understanding word meaning, it's hard enough in English, but in Hebrew or Aramaic, it's a daunting task. But what if a Torah teacher had a learning tool that helped her engage her students with the Chumash material before they even walked into class? What if there was a learning tool that allowed a Rebbe to know which of his students had prepared the Mishnah and what specific parts of the material they found challenging? And what if that tool was digital, online, and totally customizable, allowing a Murat to have complete control over what and how her students were learning? Now, Judaic teachers can stop asking what if, because we built that tool. It's called Kita. To learn more and get a head start on planning for the coming school year, visit kita.org today. That's kita.org, K-I-T-A-H dot O-R-G. And we're back. I want to focus, though, on something that Rabbi, Rabbi Schaefer wrote, Schaefer, Schaefer wrote, which I think was really, really very interesting. He wrote about a Deloitte, um, a Deloitte report called uh, Global Human Capital Trends. And he said that institutions and organizations that want to thrive they have to be what's called human-centered, meaning forget what the shul was until now. The shul has this and the shul needs that. You have to ask yourself, what do your people need? What do they want? And, and if you're not providing that, then you're, you're simply not going to survive. I think there's a lot of truth to that. But, and then he went on to say that, that perhaps for some people, he's considering offering an adult education program at, at, at the same time as shul. And I will tell you, he's considering it. I know the, the rabbi in, I don't think he's in Ottawa, he did this explicitly. He ran... During part of the davening, there was a class for people. And I know that at the same shul, and in many shuls across the country, there's, I'm not going to call it, there's no, they don't have a term for it, but it's a coffee club. There are many young parents who would come to shul, bring their children to the babysitting, sit downstairs and enjoy coffee with their friends and read the newspaper. And that was their shul experience until Kiddush. And that's good. That's great. That was their connection to, to, to Judaism, to, their, to the Jewish community. They wanted their children to be in the youth groups or whatever it was. And so this raises the question to me, and I think we'll start with Mali this time. How far do you think shuls can go to, to, uh, to address that human need? Uh, and I'll just illustrate this with another point. When I was in, um, in Leeds, there was a member of one of the shuls, and, and the, the UK is full of huge buildings that are used primarily three times a year. And then the rest of the time, the main sanctuary is almost empty, or they dive it in a side shul, very much like the, the shuls of old in the United States of America. And he's like, to make, he's an older gentleman, wonderful man. He said, this is crazy, we have to do something. So he petitioned the rabbi, and they, he ran literally a Jewish meditation service. Well, there was no davening, really. He sort of modeled after it. He had made it up. There was nothing asur about it, per se. And the rabbi encouraged him to do it. 
And I have to follow up and see how it was, but it's like a very interesting thing. There's nothing against doing Jewish meditation. And there are many people who will never set, step foot at a shul, at least not originally, at least not initially, but very much want Jewish meditation because that speaks to where they are. So my question for you, Molly, is not an alone food. Okay, you, you need a Hashkama minion and you need a Harbach minion, and there's no reason why that shouldn't happen. But in Kansas City or New York or whatever, do you think they should offer meditation and adult education at the same time as they offer Shabbat morning services? Do you think that they should be offering Sunday morning music services with a full band and a choir that'll allow people to not just Karbach, gospel if they wanted? You know, I personally, I happen to love gospel music and I find it incredibly spiritual. Like, can you, like, you know, just, do you see that coming? Or do you think no, there's, that's a step too far and, and we just, it's just not going to happen? Right. So first of all, Halavai, we should have meditation in Alon Shvat. I think we would all do better if we, we, we uh, the more meditation, the better. That's my personal opinion. If you opinion. build it, they will come. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe that'll be what I'll be uh, next time. It'll be, that, that'll be my, what I'm, you know, what I'm advertising on RZ Weekly. Um, but um, I think the answer is something that Johnny referred to before, which what, in a conversation we had before we started um, t- um, recording, was the, the wisdom of the individual Rav and communal leader. I think that probably, I can't presume to answer that question on a broad um, level because you have to know your community, you have to know the halachic commitment levels of your community, you have to know the whether you have a community that you should be challenging to increase their halachic you know, participation or whether you have a community where that's not, that's not where they are and what, what you really want is, is spiritual engagement and, and communal and religious engagement. So I think that like, that's a question for the leaders of the individual communities in their wisdom to know what is my community need, what's too far, what, what's not too far, what's a, just an additional blessing to this community, uh, where are they starting, where, where are they going, um, who are my people? And, and, and I think that, therefore, the answer is the question of what's too far and what's not too far, I think that falls on the individual uh, communal leaders for each individual uh, uh, community, um, and I, I, I would I would re- I would hope that we have leaders who will be able to respond to the needs of the of the people wisely, and I would and that we can trust to make those decisions, you know, in the best interest of their of their communities. I didn't understand a word you said. You didn't. I'm not saying really. like you didn't trust. Say the- yes. Yes or no? Because I'm not going to answer what's gonna, what should be in Kansas City and what should be in Alon Shvud. No, no, I didn't say that. I'm you, saying, are, you in favor, are you in favor of those things or do you think that we really need to stick to the model? I, I, listen, I, th- I think to both things are true. I think in general we need to stick to the model. I think orthodoxy works because orthodoxy sticks to the, sticks to the model. Um, and, oh, you know, that's what I wanted to know. Meaning if uh, so you go no, too far, do, yes, then, I, then it's just not going to be shul anymore. So it, what's the point? I do think that that's true, right? Again, I've said this before, but like halacha is probably the best worst system. Like the two, like democracy is like the best worst system. Halacha might have its have its drawbacks and its flaws, but it, it come on, 2,000 years, it's worked. Um, right, and Rav Kook has a beautiful piece called Chachamadif Minavi, where he says that like with, with the beautiful poets of, of Bayit Rishon um, and, and um, the Tanakh were not able to do, the, 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 the Gemara was able to do, the Chachamim of the Gemara were able to do by getting mm. us down into the nitty-gritty, boring details because that's what keeps, uh, that's what keeps us going. That's what keeps, keeps our relationship with God going. That's what keeps Judaism alive. And I, so I'm not, I'm not going to... I, I'm very careful about pulling threads out of the halachic system. I have a lot of allegiance to the halachic system. That being said, I, I, I would still make... Well, when I'm state, talking about pulling threads, I mean, everything is halachic. It's just... 
you know, is it a structure. Right. We're talking so, about like has structure. Right. So what Sikhi I would say is, how much do you shachri, right. Torah reading? So I would say, I say, I right. So I'd say to, to, I think you need pretty big shoulders to to mess around with the system. Um, and I think if you're going to do that, I, th- I think better people to, who do that are people. It's like um, my husband once asked Rav Luchtenstein a shaila. He knew that, that Rav Luchtenstein was going to give him a kula. It was for a student of his who had a situation at home. He knew Rav Luchtenstein was going to give him the kula. There was no way he wasn't. But he was so moved by how hard it was for Rav Luchtenstein to get to the kula. First he went through, you know, it's difficult because of this and it's difficult because of that. And Allah doesn't really want this and it's really bediyevet. And then he got to the kula. And he said, like, that's how we should be giving... You know, if you're going to change things and you're going to, quote unquote, be make kill about certain things, it should come from a basis of like, really, I believe in the system and really, I believe in the system's integrity, but I understand why in this situation I have to shift it. Not from a kind of blasé attitude, which is like, yeah, the system doesn't work. Let's tinker with it. I think if there are going to be movements and changes, they're going to work if they come from people who have the former approach and not the latter approach. So, Johnny, I want to come back to you because I, res- I very much respect, I-, I think that there might be a sense that this is not authentic and people will just recoil from it. But that's, again, a human response. And they'd rather go to it, like maybe they'd just rather go to a shul where everybody talks as long as it's shul. But my perception, I can say this because I'm no longer a shul rabbi, is that for many Jews, the structure of prayer and davening, the way we grew up with it, the way all of us grew up with it, the way it's been done for not 2,000 years, Molly, but maybe 500 years, okay, the way it's been done for 500 years, just doesn't reflect anyone's spiritual needs anymore. Meaning, especially if you think about what, what do we pray for on Shabbat? What are the, you know, it's not even like, there's not Shemona where you can say pray for welfare and pray for sustenance and pray for the health of whatever. We stuff those in, you know, where we can during in the middle of laning. What do we pray for on Shabbat? We pray for our ultimate redemption, that God should bring true light to the world, that we should, you know, have, those are the things we pray for, because that's what Chazal envisioned, that we should be praying for, modeled after Musaf, after the Korbanot. Correct? Like, even, like, even the Torah reading, the Haftorah, I look around. I mean, just look around. How many people in, in, in the average shul are simply listening to the haftorah? And I'm talking about in Israel, achat kama vekama, where people don't really understand the language. So you're talking about a, a case where the structure is there, and it's in, maybe it's comforting, but but when people look at it with an with an honest eye, you have to acknowledge that for the vast majority of people, it's not moving because they can't relate to it. They don't understand it. And it doesn't speak to their spiritual needs. It's, well, here's an interesting... Wait, wait, A, do you uh, agree with me? You can disagree, but that's what I see. And if, if you agree with me, you could say, sorry, nothing's going to change. We have to stick with it. Or you could say, no, we have to try to tinker to, within the confines of halakha, make a gospel service on Sunday morning and get people to be excited. I don't know, whatever. Within the confines of halakha, find ways to bring meaning to people in the lives they lead in the modern world. So I'd like to say two things. They they will uh, overlap one another. Let's let's begin with the last point you made, and then I'll go back. You know, I'm, I'm a, I like playing a piano, and I've been to various different classical concerts. I've been to classical concerts at the Royal Festival Hall with Mari Perachia playing Chopin, and I can tell you of the like there are ten thousand, fifteen thousand people listening to Perachia playing Chopin. Most people can't tell you the deep meaning of Chopin, the poet of the piano. They can't tell you really what he was trying to get at when he wrote that music. What they do know is there's something beautiful there. And they come and they listen and they understand certain things. They appreciate certain things. And they walk away perhaps a little bit the wiser or appreciative of the experience. 
just because somebody doesn't fully understand something doesn't mean there isn't something they can gain from being present. However, in order to encourage more people to go to classical music concerts, what I'd do is try and educate them about what's going on in music. So before we start talking about what people don't get from prayer, I'd ask ourselves the following question. When was the last time you, me, each one of us as educators or rabbis and communities actually said, let's try and make sense of the synagogue service and try and explain it with a, with a, with a tone of appreciation of its richness, as of its tone of, of what it's trying to bring to us? Because if we don't, then all of this conversation is a little bit silly. It's like saying, I went to listen to a beautiful piece of music. I didn't understand. I didn't come. And there's something wrong with the music. No, there's something wrong with your limited understanding. Now, that doesn't make you bad, but it means we've worked to do in order uh, to educate I, I'm going to push back on that and say, it's like the people who come on Yom Kippur and they never said a slicha in their life. You know what I'm saying? And then you come to Ne'ilah and you don't realize that Ne'ilah is the culmination of, like it's like one line from everything you have said week by week, day by day. And if you did that, then, then you're like, oh my God, I'm here. I finally made it. But if you didn't do that, then it's like, okay, it's another, just seven more verses and, and why do we have to say so many, you know, Hashem Hashems. Chazal designed tefillah as a system. So if you say Psukei Zimra every day, then when you say Psuki de Zimra on Shabbat with the Halal Gadol, then that's why well, you're bumping it up. And you say Bismor Shili on Shabbat and you're extending Psuki de Zimra. Chazal understood that you were going to pray for your daily needs every single day. And therefore, when you come to Shabbat, when you don't do that, you're feeling, oh, this is a different day. But we're talking about a community that by and large don't pray every day. They're not appreciative. And now you're, you're, you're sort of like throwing them into a system where... By just, I agree. So, so that can't, needs I mean, you education. can't say, oh, we have so, to just teach you and we'll, we'll show you the beauty. It's, it's not relevant to show them the beauty because they're not there. They're not at that place. It's just not, it's okay, not so first, where they're at. You know what I'm saying? It's very uh, nice to say we have to teach the beauty. And now, of course, I'm in favor of Jewish education more than the next guy. But th that's a, that's a, it's not a real solution to this problem. So let me get to the second point, which I think actually gives, shall we say, a framework for why that really is a task of shul. You know, uh, I think it's attributed to different people, the Briskarov or the Rogachov or Heschel, who say, when we pray, we talk to God, and when we study Torah, God talks to us. And I strongly believe in that sentiment. What is a prayer experience on Shabbat? It's both. We don't just come to pray. We come to hear the word of God. And we have this interlacing of listening and talking. It is a, a conversation of sorts. Now, the question you asked is, would it be improper if somebody said, I want to come to shul, but I want to hear different words of God than the laning? Well, I'd say maybe an affront to, to Minag Yisrael, or, but they're actually saying, I want to hear things, but in a slightly different tone. I'd say, shkak, beautiful. I'd be the first to arrange it. Of course, not to, God forbid, um, it, uh, do anything to diminish the kavod we give to Kriyat Torah. But if somebody says, the limut Torah that I need to hear this morning, isn't that of Parshat Vayichi, but instead is the stories of the Baal Shem Tov. I'd say if right now that's a Torah you need to hear, then that's a Torah I need to provide for you. And definitely, shuls need to be trying to make sure that the learning experience, which enriches the prayer experience, speaks to the souls of people who are coming. But the, here's the deal. The parasha can profoundly speak to people if we make sure it does. We used to have a maturgaman. Nowadays, 
I don't think much of an effort is made to even make sense of the parasha to whomever's there. Since when is it problematic to pause between the Kriyava Torah? I know we're so concerned about Tircha de Tzibura. We should also be concerned about inspiration de Tzibura. And maybe that's a time to say the Tzakot of Bnei Yisrael, as we're reading, you know, between Shemot and Ba'er, the Tzakot of Bnei Yisrael. This is what Kaddish Baruch wants to hear when things are troubled. That's what our tefillah is. And they should share with them the power of tzaka, which according to Rav Soloveitchik is a foundation of tefillah. So my, my sense is that, that the prayer service, of course, things have developed over time. And yes, there's lots of misunderstanding and people are impatient. And we're talking about COVID and things are difficult. But nevertheless, sometimes we don't even give it a chance. And we don't give, as educators, as religious leaders, the community, the, the ability to make sense of something that may well be nonsensical to them. And our task as educators who are privileged with knowledge is to make sense and give shape to those experiences because the original Kriyabha Torah was appended with a maturgaman who, who helped the people. And a translation isn't maturgaman. A translation is just something on the other side of the page that maybe you'll gaze to. But there is life in the words of Torah, Torah Chaim. And we need to give people that Chaim of the Torah, which then enriches their desire and their feeling of connectivity to call out and talk to God. So that's, again, maybe it's going back to, as Mali said before, that's the ideal. My feeling is, like, like you were saying about Rav Lichtenstein, sometimes you have to pass Gumbadiyavet. But we should always at least endeavor to live L'Chatechila, knowing that doesn't always happen. I think too many of us presume that the prayer experience in synagogue is always a Bidiyavet. I think that's a failing on the leadership. We should presume we can make it L'Chatechila. There are some people with Moshe Weinberg and his Eish Kaidash who have endeavored to achieve that. But I'd say most others perhaps haven't quite stepped up to the plate. There's so much there in the beautiful, rich, stunning words of tefillah that we don't necessarily even try to make sense of for others to connect with. Okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're, we're, we're gonna end off with this topic. I would ask you to answer like really quickly. Quick fire round. Do you think that tefillah in the shuls, when we come back to shul, will be different in some significant way? Yes or no? Really quick. Because we're running out of time anyway. Molly? No. Johnny? I, I think for a bit of time, they'll be different because they've been so different. I'm with Molly. I'm, I'm more... More pessimistic. I think we, 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 I actually, I'm not sure people you're yearning for that much different. And uh, I think and, even and if they will, maybe that first time you'll be like, woo, we're all back together, you know, and then it'll peter back down. Right. Okay. On that heavy note, or on that happy note, we're going to Hamlet's <laughs> Molly. Did you want Johnny to go first? I think Johnny's time is more limited. No, I haven't got, I haven't got, I need to think of one. <laughs> you okay. okay, had a whole so week. I'm so excited that I have a Hamlet It's, it's, it's not, it's not high culture, it's low culture. But oh, I'm going, I'm, you know, Johnny was Mamlitz last week on um, some type of um, classical music thing, right? Isn't that what you So this is much yeah, more low culture. Canvas, I'm going to be yeah. Mamlitz on Cobra Kai. Um, <laughs> it is awesome. It is now on Netflix. Um, it is it is uh, now three seasons. It's this. It's if you're a Karate Kid fan, it is this. It is the, it is 
it's a it's a continuation of what you know the Karate Kid was in the '80s, and now we're today, and it's about the characters as they're grown up. The reason it's awesome, it's awesome for a lot of reasons. One, as you guys know, I'm very I'm a very frustrated Star Wars fan who think that Disney did Star Wars dirty in the sense that um, you're taking a, a legacy um, um, franchise. And they did everything wrong. And Cobra Kai does everything right. So that's not the main thing I want to say, but I just want to say that as a side point. They honor the characters. Um, they develop them in a way that's very organic to who they are. Um, they, they first started with the characters that you, you already cared about and were already connected to. Then they introduced new characters. And they did it. They did everything right. So that's the first. You know, this is why. That's why Cobra Kai is awesome. That's just from a, like you know, if you're interested in like uh, the cultural, the larger those cultural questions that are going on. But the other reason I think Cobra Kai is awesome is because it 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 again, if you're talking about culture wars, it deals with question with really important questions in a really complex way, and that is to me is profound. It 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 addresses how do you how do you stand up to. The simple word would be bullying, but I would say it's, it's how do you stand up to evil in the world? And instead of going on this very simple path of, um, you know, violence bad, aggression bad, you know, like peace, love, and harmony good, which would be so simplistic, it actually um, has a much more complex approach. And it says, yes, you know, peace good, violence bad, but there's also something in the middle which is um, being, you can, you, you can find, a, a, the, there's a way to be strong and defend yourself without being aggressive and, um, and negative. And, and, so, and some people need that. And I think the other thing I like about that, first of all, I like that because it brings complexity to the conversation, which I think we desperately need in our time. And it's not afraid of, of, of dealing with issues in a complex way. And it also, um, again, I think we're at a cultural place where like there's a sense that media is not able to to hold the different approaches in our larger culture, and this does it beautifully. This does what, quote unquote, I would say the left wants to do in a, in a beautiful way. There's beautiful representation. You have strong, powerful women, main characters. Um, there's representation of, of a lot of different um, um, people from a lot of different backgrounds and races in a, in, in a wonderful way, and at the same time, it makes space for people who who are feeling frustrated and who want to just like laugh at some of this stuff, okay. And I'll just get end by saying, it's like a breath of fresh air into in in the world of, of media. And it's and Ruby always says that like he wants us to be thoughtful about the the culture we consume. There's so much to talk about. It opens up a lot a lot to talk about. So that's so Molly, another another podcast on the uh, on the network. We're gonna do a Cobra Kai uh, I will episode do it. by episode. Absolutely. I, I, I actually, Johnny, you have to go because I know you have to go because I have to. I have to ask you a question about Cobra Kai. Johnny, tell us. You have, you have Hamlet, huh? Um So I, I only got it uh, about a week and a, a bit ago, but I recently got my copy of *The Birth of Doubt: Confronting Uncertainty in Early Rabbinic Literature* by Moshe Halbertal, translated by Rabbi Eli Fisher. And so far, I'm enjoying it. So uh, I can. I'm only some few pages into it, but it's a fascinating and nuanced book exploring exploring the the concept of Safek in in the Tanaitic literature, and uh, I think it's wonderful. That's, That's a Johnny Hamlet. That exactly. is a Johnny <laughs> See, I was I going. To, I was going to give a Hamlet to my to the Chuvot re Rabbi Yitzchak Ben Shmuel Bidan Pierre that I just got, just published this year uh, by my 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 thesis, my uh, my doctor, my thesis advisor, Dr. Pinchas Ra. I was going to advise that, but I don't want to go too high. No, but Molly, I have to, before I give my Hamlet's eye, if Johnny, you have to go, it's okay, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up. 
Um, oh, he probably needs this. Uh, you need this uh, the Zoom feed. Okay. Um, so, Molly, I'm thinking about, we probably should, should do the Cobra Kai podcast. Let's do it. Because, because I feel like it's so interesting that they see, they see Johnny Lawrence as a, as a model, as an archetype, that there is this sort of like liberal, or you can't speak that way, or you can't talk that way. And he's just like, quiet, quiet, stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> and, but he's seen as a hero. And that's sort of tying into some cultural need that people have yes. to respond. Like Very it's, interesting. It's fascinating. All right, now yeah. this is not the no, Cobra he's, Kai he's, podcast. Okay, but. fine. Well, we'll do the Cobra Kai podcast. I just want to say one thing about that, which is that that's another thing I think. People are, are thirsting for healthy male role models. And the, Cobra Kai takes on that question of what's, and, and, and it's, again, it, it, it's acceptable in the modern culture because it definitely says toxic masculinity, bad, right? Like crease and bad. But, yeah, but what's toxic, man? Whatever, this but, is not the test. Right, but healthy, but, but it gives space for for positive um, male role models that are not just about, you know, whatever. We can talk about it when we get there, but I, that's that's part of what I think. It's fa- And again, there's so much depth. Uh, the Cobra Kai podcast. There's so much depth into like the, into the, what should I say, one more thing. Um, the, the solution. Poor Johnny needs his, Poor he Johnny, needs his, the he solution. Needs his, he needs, you know, but he needs his what's Okay, but I, I'm going to, I'll leave you with a question and I'll leave Johnny with this question. The solution that's, I'm going to say this very broadly, the solution that's, that's um, the ultimate solution to violence that's suggested as an option in this show is, um, you don't destroy your enemy. You take away their power to hurt you. And I'm just wondering whether you think that's a Jewish idea. Uh, no. So we can talk about that next time. <laughs> Anywho, Quite uh, I will wrap up with my hamlatza. It'll be a personal hamlatza. I want to recommend a song put together by my son, uh, together with his friend, my son Petachia, who did our music, our intro and out music, together with, um, with a friend of his, Benjamin Blank. They did a cover of Through It All, which is by some, a guy named Charlie Puth, who I never heard of before. Some very famous... Uh, like teen guy, okay? So um, he did a cover of Through It All, and I think you guys, if you give me permission, do you mind if I post it, if I paste it at the end of the, uh, at the end of the pod so people can listen to it? It's really quite a beautiful song, if you don't mind. Feel free. Molly, you okay with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm looking forward okay. to hearing it. No, so just, I feel, I want to, poor Johnny, we're, we're, we're like, clogging up. That's my humble, that's all. We're wrapping up here. My name is Vince Bolt. I want to thank Molly Brodsky and our Johnny Salomon for his incredible patience as the students are waiting for him. This is RZ Weekly. As always, leave us a recommendation in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcast. Share it on Facebook. Actually, now that everybody's leaving Facebook, share it on Telegram because you can't share it on Parler, which is another interesting discussion to have. Have a great week, everybody. Bye now. could say I lived a crazy life for a man so young That kind of made me question my faith And now I'm looking back just wondering where the time has gone But I guess it's just the price you pay I've already loved more than I thought I could love someone I've already felt my heart break And I've already failed so many times But I got back up But at least I did it all my way I've been through it all Yeah, I've been through it all Yeah, you won't see me crying Tomorrow never
Come 